Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Word of God, and we thank you for the Word made flesh, for Jesus. That because of Jesus, we have life and hope and forgiveness of sin and the promise of eternal life. And Lord, we thank you for the fact that Jesus surrendered his life and that that surrender was a devoted surrender and a willing surrender and a substitutional surrender and a determined surrender. And Lord, it's my hope, it's my prayer this morning, Lord, that we look at the surrender of the Savior and that we begin to ask and answer the question about our own surrender to you. Lord, I know that many people have surrendered to you and that some are reluctant. And so, Lord, we pray that we would come to that place where we are sold out that our mind, our heart our resources are wholly, fully given over to you in Jesus name Amen John chapter 18 beginning in verse 1 it says when Jesus had spoken these words he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place where Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which you spoke of, those whom you gave me I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? John's gospel is going to fast forward from here on in. It turns to the events surrounding the arrest of Jesus in chapter 18, verses 1 through 14, and then the denial of Jesus in verses 15 through 27, and then the rejection of Jesus in verses 28 through 40. And so the gospel will quickly move from Christ's condemnation to Christ's crucifixion to Christ's conquering sin and death. And that's part of the challenge that, that the gospel is trying to bring to us. That when you see the condemnation and the crucifixion in the back of your mind, there is the constant awareness that Jesus is risen from the dead. You know, I, I grew up in a world where surrender wasn't an option. And some of you grew up in that same kind of world. In the little community where I was born in New Orleans, there was a, a particular ward. It was called the Ninth Ward, and it was the rough section of town. As a matter of fact, where all the Italian people lived, it was sort of like an Italian ghetto. You know what you call an Italian ghetto? A spug ghetto. And for fun, my uncles would march me around the neighborhood and I had to fight kids the same age in the block. 
I grew up in a world where you learn early that you're either going to be the victim or the victimizer. And you don't surrender on the playground and you don't surrender in the classroom and you don't surrender in the gym and you don't surrender on the battlefield. And because we grow up in that kind of world, every molecule in our body says don't give up and don't give in, even when it applies to God, because God calls for our surrender. In a world that's made up of winners and losers, some have read the story of Jesus and come to the conclusion that here is this man, a good man, uh, arguably maybe the best man who ever lived, but his life spins out of control and he finds himself under horrible circumstances where he is taken over and he is falsely arrested and falsely condemned and falsely crucified. But Jesus isn't the victim of historical circumstances. Jesus is not grist in history's mill. There was a very famous physician who wrote a book it was called In Search of the Historical Jesus. It was by Albert Schweitzer. And he had that opinion. He had the opinion that here is man at his noblest and at his greatest, but he is the victim of, of, of a theology gone wrong, that he got caught up in the, this messianic mania, and they killed him. And so he leaves us with the impression that Jesus, a great man, arguably the greatest man, is still nonetheless only a man. But it's not true. Jesus willingly and voluntarily surrenders. He goes to this place not simply to be arrested, but to surrender to the will of God and the plan of God and the purpose of God. And guess what? Each and every one of you at some point in your life will come to a place, a valley of decision, a place where you will be left with one of two choices. That you will do what God wants you to do or you will do what you want to do. Jesus has already said in John chapter 10, verse 18, No man takes it, that is my life from me, but I lay it down by myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up. Jesus, the Savior, surrenders to his Father's will. And our flesh, remember what our flesh is. Our flesh is everything apart from Jesus. Our flesh is the sum and the substance of all that we are. Not just the bad things, not just the wicked things, not just the wrong things, but even the good things. That seeks to live apart from Christ. But if you want God's favor, and if you want God's will, then you're going to have to surrender to the will of God. You know, there's a great story in the Old Testament about Jacob as he's leaving his father-in-law and he's bringing his army out of the place and God has told him to return to the land and he comes to this river called the River Jabbok and he, he has his past looming large over his life. The Lord has told him to go back into the land, to go back to Bethel where he first met God and his brother is there and he remembers the hypocrisy and the treachery and the wickedness and the evil that he perpetuated on his brother and he now knows that he's going to have to face his past and he comes to the river and he divvies up his family into two camps, the wife that he really likes and the wife that he sort of likes. He's got goats, camels, oxen, herds. And he sends the goats and the, and the camels and the oxen ahead. And then he sends the wife that he's not particularly fond of. And then he sends the wife that he is really fond of. And all that's left is him on this side of the river. Because it's easy to surrender your stuff. And wives know how easy it is to surrender their husband. Oh, just take him, Lord. Take him. No, no, I really mean it. Take him. And husbands know how to surrender their wives. 
But the most difficult thing of all is to surrender yourself. And Jacob is met by an angel of the Lord. And he wrestles all night with the angel. And you know the story how the angel places his finger in the small of his thigh and it bursts. By the way, it's the, the, it's the most difficult sinew in your body to break. It literally takes a horse to remove that sinew from the surface of, of the bone. And the Bible says that Jacob walked with a limp for the rest of his life. My friend Cy Rogers says, it's not amazing that I walk with a limp. He says, it's amazing that I can walk at all. He had come to a place of surrender. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, said, the greatness of a man's power is the measure of his surrender. And Jesus provides the picture of surrender. And what does that mean? What does it mean to surrender to God? Remember that God has created all things for himself. The sun that shines on the planet Earth, the sun exists to give glory to God. And it is placed in the exact position that necessitates it to provide light to the planet. The sun exists for God. The moon exists for God to reflect the sun and its gravity push and pulls the ocean tides. Everything that exists, exists to the glory of God and is surrendered to God for special service. That's what surrender means. When you look at my watch, my watch exists to tell time. The pin in my pocket, when I pull it out of my pocket, it submits to me and it writes what I want it to write. My computer works because it's a Mac and not a PC. Well, okay, most of the time it works. It surrenders to the function that it was called to. There can be no personal freedom if there is no personal surrender. A group of ministers met together in a certain city to deliberate on whether or not to invite a very famous evangelist to come and preach in the last century. And, and, he, and one young man who didn't want this particular person to come, he stood up and he said, Why Moody? Does he have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? And there was silence. And then an old godly minister stood up and said, No. He doesn't have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on D.L. Moody. That's surrender. As a matter of fact, if you were to ask the person next to you, or perhaps the person in back of you, or in front of you, or maybe that person isn't even here, but if you were to ask the person who knows you best, who can describe the way that you think and the way that you act and the way that you live, not necessarily when you're at church and even not necessarily when you're at work, but wherever it is that you happen to be and they begin to describe and characterize your life, what kind of a person are you? Are you surrendered to God? Have you surrendered to the Lord in your thinking and your speaking and your living? And perhaps... The surrender is hard coming because you're unwilling to do what it takes in order to surrender. I'm going to suggest to you that a surrendered life is a devoted life, a devotional life. Look at verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples Entered. Now remember, the prayer of Jesus ends and the purpose of Jesus continues. So when it says when Jesus had spoken these words, he's talking about all of the words that have been taught from chapter 14 and chapter 15 and chapter 16 and then the prayer in chapter 17. One of the, the, the ways that a high priest was to minister to his people, the high priest taught the children of Israel and then the high priest prayed for the children of Israel. And then the high priest offers the sacrifice for Israel. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He teaches them. And he 
prays for them. And then he sacrifices for them. But the sacrifice isn't going to be a goat, and it isn't going to be a lamb, and it isn't going to be a bull. It's going to be him. He's going to be the sacrifice. It says in verse 1, he went out. And that phrase may not excite you. It may not be the first thing that you would want to underline in your Bible. In the Old King James, it says he went forth. And it's a single Greek word, exelthen. It's the same word that appears in verse 4 when it says Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward. It's translated went forward in verse 4. The idea is that this is something that is taking place with a purpose, with guidance. It's reasoned intent. The idea is it's almost as if you know what you have to do and your mind and your heart and your body come together in order to go in a direction that, that you need to go. That's what it says. Jesus went out. He went forth to prepare himself. Not physically necessarily. Not even mentally or emotionally, but spiritually. Because he knows that the hour has come. The hour of his death. And so he is going to a place of preparation. But make no mistake about it, it's a familiar place. Because the place of preparation is also the place of devotion. Jesus knew that his hour had come. He knew that it was God's will for him to die for the sin of the world. He knew that sin creates an awful separation from God. He knew that sin cuts us off from God's presence. He knew all of those things and he knew what he had to do. He knew that the cross would be a terrible ordeal, but he also knew that apart from that sacrifice and apart from that cross, you're not going to make it. Your sin is not going to be forgiven. You're not going to experience a restoration to wholeness and wellness. So what is he supposed to do? Make no mistake about it. Every molecule in his body wanted to run. Because Jesus is a human being. He is completely human. But he's also completely God. And God has placed inside of each and every one of you this powerful instinct to survive. And every molecule in your body, every cell in your body says, live. Live. And he comes with his disciples over the brook Kidron. I love that word. Kidron. That's how you say it in the Hebrew language. It is a little wadi or a stream. It's now completely dry. If you ever get a chance to go with me, it's the little wadi that runs right in front of the, the east side of, the, of Jerusalem and it empties into the Dead Sea. And the Bible tells us in the not too distant future that at some point in a future time, a spring is going to spring up from the Temple Mount, a secret source in the Millennial Kingdom, and it's going to gush forth water. And when Jesus and his disciples crossed the brook, it ran at the floor of the valley. And there was a sheer cliff that goes up some 200 feet with the wall built on top of that. And there's a series of, of squares. There's the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews and, the, and, and, and the, excuse me, the court of the women and the court of the Jews. And inside there's an inner court where they would offer sacrifice. And in the first century, when Jesus is walking across this particular court, they have herded in between 150,000 and 200,000 lambs. And like a killing mill, they bring the lamb and they cut its throat and they open its belly and the blood drains through a grate and then the blood like a river begins to empty into the brook Kidron. And by this time, even though it's dark. And even though it's Passover, because 
Remember, Passover always takes place when the moon is full and the moon is bright. And when Jesus and his disciples come to the brook Kidron, they can see that it is dirty, muddy, bloody. It's filled with blood. And as he wades across the bloody brook, he understands that his own sacrifice is about to take place. And the garden is translated from a single Greek word, kepos. It's used in chapter 19, verse 41, and also in Luke chapter 13, verse 19. The NIV translates this olive grove because we know this is the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, the place where the olives grow. And to this very day, you can find olive trees growing on the side of the mountain. Some of them are 800 to 1,000 years old. And Jesus goes to this place, prepared to die. And it's a familiar place. In verse 2, it says, And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. Jesus isn't going there to hide from his enemies. He's going there because he knows that this is exactly where he's going to be found. Jesus deliberately goes to a place where Judas knows that he will find him. I know that you have problems. I know that you have difficulties and issues and pains that you have to deal with. But let me encourage you. There is a place that I want to encourage you to go every single day. It's your own garden. It's the place of devotion. It's the place, maybe for you, when you wake up in the morning. Maybe for you, it's the place when you go to to bed. But it is the place where you meet with God. It's the place where you pray to God. It's the place where you open up the Bible and you hear from God. Because if you go to that place and you pray in that place and you listen to God in that place, guess what? It will not just simply prepare you for the day. It will prepare you for your life and it will prepare you for surrender. I can almost guarantee you that none of you, I repeat, none of you, will surrender apart from a place of personal devotion. And you know what's interesting about that place of personal devotion? It's a place where God shows up. It's a place where the Holy Spirit shows up. But sometimes it's also the place where the betrayer shows up. In this case, it's the betrayal of the things that you've done in the past or the things that you've done in the present. There is that awful voice that whispers in your ear that follows you wherever you go. Your enemy knows that 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 place of devotion is the place that gives you a lifeline to God. Will it create and eliminate every single problem? No. But trust me, trust me when I tell you that if you will cultivate a life of devotion, it will lead to a life of surrender. And Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. You know, it's interesting to me what John doesn't speak about. He doesn't talk about the agony in the garden. He doesn't talk about the failure of the disciples to remain awake. He doesn't talk about the agony. He doesn't talk about Christ's claim to be able to summon angelic hosts. He doesn't talk about the traitor's kiss. He doesn't talk about the desertion by his friends. All of that is talked about in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And in verse 3 it says, Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Judas receives a detachment of troops and officers, sometimes translated a cohort. But it's a very specific word. It's, it's actually a tactical word that's used in the Greek language to, discuss, to, to describe one-tenth of a legion. In the ancient days, a Roman legion consisted of 6,000 troops. For you math majors, one-tenth of a cohort was a spira. 
or it was called a detachment. And, and that means 600 soldiers. On rare occasions, it might mean as few as 200 soldiers. But the book of Matthew tells us that it was a, a vast crowd. Think of it in FBI terms, like it's a joint task force with local law enforcement and the federal government. And they've come together to form this joint terrorist task force. Romans and Jews coming together to arrest a person that they believe is dangerous and is going to overthrow the government. And they're bringing lanterns and torches and weapons. Why? It's a full moon. I'll tell you why. Because they're thinking like officers. When you're a police officer and you're a part of a joint task force to go out and arrest the bad guys, here's what you expect. You expect them to run. You expect them to hide. You expect them to crawl under whatever rock that they can find to go into whatever shadow that they think that they can escape. But Jesus hasn't gone there to escape. Jesus has gone there to surrender. They think he's going to run for his life. But he's going to give his life. It is a devotional surrender. But it's also a willing surrender. Look at verse 4. It says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward, there's that word again, and said to them, what is it that you're looking for? Unlike most people, he isn't running and hiding. He stands up and he asks the question, who is it that you're looking for? It's perhaps the most important question that could ever be asked at any moment in any person's life. What is it that you're looking for? Who is it that you're looking for? Why are you here? Jesus goes forward knowing full well, look what it says, all things that will come upon him. The Savior's surrender includes full knowledge, full knowledge of the suffering and the pain and the judgment that will fall upon him. He's going forward knowing that a small army has come to seize him and that a close friend will betray him. And there's a reason why they use the word betrayal. Betrayal is not a word that you use with a stranger. Only a friend can betray you. Only someone that you love and that you care about can generate this emotion. The Savior's surrender means that He is ready and that He's willing and that He understands fully the consequences that are about to be embraced. You don't have that privilege. You may intuitively think about it when the Lord calls you to surrender and he says, you know what, I want you to start thinking differently and I want you to start acting differently and I want you to start speaking differently. I want your life to be a different life. One that's surrendered to me. And in verse 5 it says, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. By the way, in the original text and in your Bible, you'll notice that H-E is italicized, which means it's not in the original text. In other words, it's placed there for your convenience so that you can understand the context in which he's speaking. They said, who? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. You'll notice John brings special attention to the reader. Judas stood with the enemy. By the way, there's always two crowds around Jesus. The ones that stand with him. And the ones that stand against him. You know what I've noticed? That people will always go where their affections lie. Do you remember what Jesus said? That where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. 
people will go where their affections lie. People will go where their heart lingers. And Judas stands with Satan's company because Judas' heart is filled with Satan's affections. You know, there are people who say that they're looking for Jesus, but they're not really looking for Jesus. They're looking to discredit Jesus. They're looking to undermine Jesus. They're looking to find all the reasons why Jesus can't possibly be who he says that he is. If you're honest with yourself, if you're brutally honest with yourself, you'll admit that there were times in your life where you stood with Satan against Jesus. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can stand with him. Who are you looking for? Look at what it says in verse 6. Now when he had said to them, I am he. Look what it says in verse 6. They drew back and then fell to the ground. Now remember, this is an army. The Savior's surrender includes a courageous confession and claim. He's not running away. He's not hiding. He is going to face the world. He is going to face his persecutors. And he says, I am. Now now think about this for just a moment. Imagine the scene. The soldiers come thinking they're arresting a political prisoner, a threat to Rome, a threat to civil disorder, maybe a terrorist. And the moment that he says, I am, imagine a world in which you step back and the sheer force of the claim pushes you, it picks you up and slams you into the dirt. That's exactly what's happening. The mere acknowledgement of the identity of Jesus knocks the entire army down. This is a supernatural manifestation. They're knocked down by Christ's claim and by his authority and by his power and by his presence. And the reality is sometimes people looking for Jesus, even though they don't necessarily know him or understand him, are picked up by the lapels, so to speak, and slammed down into the dirt. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of an electromagnetic pulse where it explodes and the sheer impact pushes you back and then pushes you down and then creates a blackout. And Jesus provides a blast of revelation contained in a simple, powerful statement. I am. In John's Gospel, Jesus has already said this over and over again. I am the Messiah in John 4.26. I am, don't be afraid, John, John 6.20. I am the bread of life, John 6.35. I am from above, John 8.23. I am the light of the world, John 8.12, John 9. John 12.46 I am before Abraham was John 8.58 I am the door John 10.7 I am the good shepherd John 10.14 I am the son of God John 10.36 I am the resurrection and the life John 11.25 I am the Lord and the master John 13.13 I am the way and the truth and the life John 14.6 I am the true vine John 15.1 and years later years later Peter is dead and the temple is destroyed and he is banished on an island and Christ appears to him and he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega in Revelation 1.8. I am the first and the last. Revelation 1.17. A lot of people hear the claims of Christ and they still don't believe him. And the arresting crowd gets up and they wipe the dust from their bodies and they have this amazing opportunity to arrest Jesus and condemn Jesus or to confess Jesus as Lord. 
You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Paul writes and he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, you should be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Question. Jesus says, I am, knocks them to the dirt. Is it possible that Jesus could have walked through the joint task force and escaped? Does he need to call a legion of angels to protect him? He doesn't. If he wants to escape, this is his chance. But he's not going to run away from God's plan. Sometimes you're going to have the ability to run away from God's plan. And you will. Or you won't. You will run towards what it is that God has for you. Jesus' surrender is devotional. And Jesus' surrender is willing, but it's more than that. It's a substitutional surrender. Look what it says in verse 7. Then he asked them again. Tell me again who you're seeking. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And this is important. He asks them again, who are you looking for? Because Jesus steps forward. He is stepping forward to protect his friends who are in danger. He will protect them. He offers himself to save them. That's what's happening. And by the way, if they are there to take Jesus, if they have gotten a tiny taste of his supernatural power, if there is something in their mind that wants to round up the rest of the rabble-rousers, you can imagine at this point the joint terrorist task force are saying, you know, we came for Jesus. We're pretty much okay with that. And in verse 8 it says, Jesus answered, I've told you that I am He. Therefore, if you seek Me, look what it says, let these go their way. There's no need. There's no need for any of the disciples to die at this point. The act fulfills the scripture. Jesus isn't going to lose anyone that day. He is going to save them from suffering now. He's going to save them from arrest now. He's going to save them from death now. And then in verse 9, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. And this harkens back to chapter 17, verse 12, where it says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those who you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except except for the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. The verse is talking about physical protection and also preservation of your soul. Jesus is willing to save you and to keep your body by the sealing of the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. I know some of you very well. And you've told me your story. You've told me about the time when you should have died and you didn't. The car accident or the cliff. The heart attack. God has preserved you. He has preserved you not so that you could die and go to hell. He's preserved you to save you. The Lord reminds us of assurance and security. The Lord Jesus will die for their immediate protection, but he is also going to die for the long-term protection of your soul. His is a devotional surrender, and it's a willing surrender, and it's a, it's a substitutional surrender. He is putting himself in the place where you belong, and it's also a determined surrender. Look what it says in verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. You can imagine the, the servant, Malchus, of the high priest is wearing a helmet. He's at the 
front of the pack. He is lunging towards Jesus. And Peter takes out his machaira, his little short sword, and he aims at Malchus. And make no mistake about it, he's not trying to cut off his ear. He's trying to cut off his head. He's not trying to wound him. He's trying to kill him. And John, remember, has written these words way after Peter's dead and after Jerusalem's gone. And and it's interesting to me that the Savior's final miracle is to correct a wayward disciple's mistake. We know from other texts that Jesus picks up the ear and goes, sticks it back on Malchus's head and, and it grows back right before everybody's eyes. Do you realize how hard it is to tell someone the gospel when you're trying to cut their head off? Do you realize how hard and difficult it is for people to hear when you cut their ears off? I'm reasonably certain that the healing of Malchus quickly diffused an otherwise volatile circumstance. But Peter's foolish action is putting everyone at risk. Jesus has come there to surrender. And sometimes we go along with Jesus, but we don't want to surrender. We don't want to surrender to God's plan and we don't want to surrender to God's purpose. We don't want to surrender to the plan and the purpose because the plan and the purpose is that Jesus is going to be crucified. He is going to rise from the dead. The plan of God exists in order for you to experience forgiveness and hope and life and love. And no wonder he says to Peter, put your sword in the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Peter has failed to understand God's word and God's command. Peter still believes that salvation lies in an earthly answer to a social or a political or economic injustices when one powerful person enslaves a, a, a less powerful person. When, when people try to take advantage of one another and manipulate one another and, and discourage one another, Peter thinks that Jesus is in the garden to plot an earthly kingdom. He's still thinking about the the physical and the material world. He's failed to grasp the Lord's word. He's failed to grasp the spiritual and the eternal kingdom, even though Jesus has repeatedly told him. Earlier, Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest me and they're going to kill me and I'm going to rise from the dead. And they said, what? They're going to arrest me. They're going to kill me and I'm going to rise from the dead. And they go, we don't understand what you're saying. Peter's unwilling to surrender the sword. And you're most likely not to surrender the sword when you completely misunderstand God's plan and God's purpose for your life. You kick. You fight. You resist. And you even think you're doing Jesus a favor. Peter's unwilling to surrender. I'm reminded of an incident in the life of Lord Admiral Horatio Nelson. It was a time of war. It was an intense time of war. And a French officer was going to offer his surrender. He approaches the admiral and he offers his hand. And, the, and Nelson drew back and he said, give me your sword. And then I'll give you my hand. And I suspect that that's what often people do. They want to reach out to Jesus. They want peace with Jesus. They want life with Jesus. They want deliverance from their circumstances, but they're not willing to surrender to the plan of God. What is the cup that Jesus is determined to drink? It's not just a cup of human and physical suffering. It's not just simply a cup of torture. It isn't even a cup of death. It's a cup of judgment. Punishment. It's the great trial. It's the greatest trial. 
It's the separation from God. It's fracture. He is going to experience the judgment of God. Not just for every sin. It's comforting for you to think of it as every sin. It's far less comforting to think of every sin that you've committed. It's your wickedness. It's every wicked thing that you've ever said. It's every wicked thing that you've ever done. It's every point of rebellion and wickedness. It's everything that has brought about an invitation for God's wrath and God's judgment. It's all, it's the sum and the substance of everything that you've ever done and the punishment that it deserves. And then multiply it by the person next to you and the person next to them. And then multiply it by every person in this room and then multiply it by every person on this planet and then multiply it by every person who has ever lived in every age from Adam to the person who draws their last breath. The Old Testament prophets called this the cup of the Lord's fury in Isaiah 51.17. This was the cup associated with wrath in Psalm 11.6. The cup of wrath is also associated with the cup of salvation. Because Jesus is willing to drink the dregs of this cup. You can take up the cup of salvation. You can press to your lips the sweet liquid that's going to result in wholeness and wellness and forgiveness and hope and eternal life because He will bear the judgment of God for the sin of the world. The arrest of Jesus takes place in a garden. I don't think it's just a coincidence that Adam and Eve fell in a garden. Adam met the enemy in a garden and failed, and Jesus will meet the enemy in the garden. And he will surrender willingly, substitutionally, even when forces are at work trying to get him not to surrender. The first Adam began life in a garden, and Jesus, the second Adam, His life will soon come to an end in a garden. In the first garden, Adam sinned. In the second garden, Jesus overcomes sin. In the first garden, Adam fell. In the second garden, Jesus will create a mechanism so that you will be able to rise. In the first garden, Adam hides. In the second garden, Jesus says, Who are you looking for? I'm right here. In the first garden, an angel of the Lord draws a sword, making it impossible for human beings to approach the tree of knowledge or the tree of life In the second garden, Peter is forced to put his sword back in the sheath so that the object of life, the object of knowledge, the object of forgiveness, the object of salvation can become a part of your life. Jesus surrenders. Devotionally, willingly, substitutionally, in a determined fashion, because he sees you and knows you and loves you and desires that you surrender and fulfill the gift and the calling that God has placed on your life. You exist. To glorify Him. You exist to honor Him. You exist to have friendship and relationship with Him. You exist to fulfill the purpose that God has established for you. 
But you're going to have to surrender. Which means you're going to have to cultivate a lifestyle of devotion. You're going to have to cultivate a lifestyle where you desire His will and not your will. You're going to have to cultivate a lifestyle that doesn't say me first. And everything. And everyone that stands in opposition to that surrender. You have to be willing to face and be willing to overcome when they're begging you to say yes to sin. You're going to need to say no. When they're begging you to say yes to selfishness, you're going to have to say it's not me first anymore. You need to be able to write like Paul did. You've been purchased with a price, not with gold and silver that perishes, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. I suspect that everyone who crossed the brook that day, their feet were red. Covered in the combination of mud and gunk and clotted blood that flowed through that brook. Kidron. But it's not good enough that your feet is covered with blood. You have to be covered in blood from the head to the toe. That's what Jesus offers. Here's what he wants. Surrender. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we've come to our own personal river. The place where we're willing to give up our stuff the place where we're willing to give up the people that we love. But the one thing that most of us are not willing to surrender is the thing that God wants most. Our heart. Our self. Our life. Our future. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray, I pray, it is my prayer, Lord, that each and every one of us would come to a place not just simply purposing in our hearts to surrender to God, but allowing God to accomplish the work that He demands. Knowing that the Scripture is correct, it is God in you who wills and works to do according to His good pleasure. Lord, we admit the foolishness of trying to surrender on our own. Lord, we know that surrender is expected, commanded, even demanded. But Lord, we pray that we would fulfill the plan that you have for us in Jesus. And again, for that person whose heart is empty and hurt and torn and dark, where the enemy comes with torches and lanterns and, and weapons to try and scare you into running and hiding from God's plan and God's purpose. Lord, I pray that we could boldly stand up and face and embrace what you have for us in Jesus. Lord, I pray that each person would pray that prayer of submission and surrender. Lord, I love you and I want what you want for me, not what I want for myself. Lord, I'm willing to acknowledge my sin and turn from it and turn to you. Lord, give me a heart that's devoted to you. Give me a heart that's willing to surrender. Give me a heart that's willing to place others before myself. And give me a heart, Lord, determined to face those issues that easily distract me. And I commit these things to you and I pray these things in Jesus' name.